0: Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my Podbean podcast and YouTube video uh, interviews on my blog, Gaudium at Spez22.com. I am Dr. Larry Chapp, and I am happy to have this conversation today, uh, continuing on a theme that I've really been on lately a lot, which is the theme of the liturgy. And I interviewed Bishop uh, His Excellency. I got to get the titles right here. His Excellency, uh, Bishop uh, James uh Conley of my hometown diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. And the last interview was just a week or two ago. We discussed liturgy. Uh, and by the way, uh, there's going to be an article in the National Catholic Register about that interview written by me and with a link to it. So uh, the register readers will get an opportunity to access that video. But it was during the course of preparing for that video, the video that Bishop Conley referred me to my other guest today. Uh, Who is uh, Mr. Adam Bartlett and Adam uh, is the CEO. Let me get this straight. CEO and founder of something a lot of you may be familiar with, founder of Source and Summit, which is uh, which is an organization trying to upgrade liturgy and our experience of liturgy, I think, especially with regard to liturgical music. And it is both a pew missile and a digital platform to give people resources on how to upgrade things. He is uh, he's edited multiple liturgy and music uh, resources. He himself composed, I think, thousands of vernacular uh, chants, uh, chant settings. He's an active writer, teacher, speaker, workshop presenter. Uh, I'm just reading something now here, if you can't tell. Formerly, he served as a parish and cathedral music director and instructor in liturgical chant at Mundelein Seminary, assistant director at the Liturgical Institute there, and an adjunct faculty member for the Augustine Institute and as a sacred music consultant for Focus. And I uh, I think you also did something with music I mean, in terms of running a. On- Something there with regard. I had it someplace else, and I lost it at Mundelein. Uh, But we can we can talk about that. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of your accomplishments, Adam, and Bishop Conley highly recommended you, and then I mentioned you to my wife, Carrie Magnuson, Chap. Who uh, reads Adoremus and is part of the Society for Catholic Liturgy? You're involved in Adoremus, and she said you're interviewing Adam Bartlett. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! So uh, you don't know her, but she sends her regards because she's, I think, very excited that I'm doing this interview. So Adam, thank you for taking the time to come here today, as well as you, Bishop Conley. It's
1: really wonderful, wonderful to be with you,
2: Larry. All right, so let'
0: again. Uh, okay. Well, l- l- let's let's get right down to it, shall we? Uh, liturgy. Uh, I've often said I wish that we would have fewer synods on all kinds of crazy things that maybe we don't need a synod on the Amazon, a synod on synods, <laughs> you know, a big meeting on meetings, as I call it. Uh, when, in point of fact, what I really think we could use is is a synod in Rome on liturgy, because liturgy is still this festering issue and has been for a very long time. It even predates the council, uh, the the debates and and controversies over how to reform the liturgy. And then of course we got the mass of Paul VI, uh, which a lot of people today are not happy with. You've got the traditionalists. So in other words, it's it's a festering issue in the church that still needs resolution. Uh, And so, a lot of people talk, and let's let's start with this. I've often used the phrase, "What we need is a reform of the reform of the liturgy." I mean, a lot of people have used that term over the past decades. Uh, but Adam, we'll start with you, if Bishop doesn't mind. Uh, I don't. I want to break protocol here. I'm not going to start with His Excellency. I'm going to go straight to Adam. What do you, you? You have a certain critique of that phrase, "reform of the reform of the liturgy." So please share that with us, and then launch into what you want to say.
1: Yeah, um, the Reform of the Reform, I mean, Bishop, we were discussing this just recently. Um, I can't actually remember where the phrase came from. Bishop Conley, do you recall, Was, did, did, did Ratzinger actually, did Pope, Pope Benedict coin that phrase? I think, uh, he, if I recall, made, um, I think
2: it, it came out of either his writings or those who kind of published around this topic, um, Ignatius Press uh, publishers right. and those kind of people. Right. right. It's, it's oh, been... By the way,
0: before, before before you get started, Adam, I I, I want to be sure that you, we will get to a discussion of Source and Summit and what it is that it does. But I kind of want to set the stage for that by having this more general conversation about liturgy first. So go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted.
1: No, no. Um, yeah, I think the, 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 the term Reform of the Reform and the Reform of the Reform Movement um, got a lot of currency, I think, in the latter years of Pope John Paul II's papacy, which he he handed off to Pope Benedict XVI um, in the year of the Eucharist, right? There was a whole kind of movement toward liturgical renewal and a right reading or a rereading of the Second Vatican Council and the liturgy documents, etc. Um, so I think that over the last you know uh, 20 years, um it's been it's been a common point point of focus. And 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 a big part um, of its emphasis really was that um we had ritual reform with the liturgical books that that occurred mostly in the immediate years following the Second Vatican Council and then you know um, in an ongoing manner for for several decades. But most of that ritual reform happened you know in in the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. And after several decades of, of experience, you know it's a good time for the church to reflect on you know how how, how is this gone? Uh, and so when people talk about reform of the reform, it's really about um, assessing the fruits of the ritual reform that happened after the Second Vatican Council and considering, um, you know, is there anything else that we ought to continue to uh, to 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 look at or reconsider or um, you know, elaborate upon, et cetera. So I mean we we have actually had, three editions of the the Missal of Paul VI. Um, the, the most recent one was the 2002 Missale Romanum promulgated by Pope John Paul II, um, which we received an English translation of in 2011 according to a uh, new translation principle. So you could kind of think of Liturgia Authenticum of 2001 as an act of the reform of the reform, you know, in the sense that there were previous translation principles that gave us the, the older um, translation of the Missal. Liturgium authenticum gave us kind of renewed and, and revised um, translation principles in light of our experience, right? And so um, this idea of ritual reform is is what is something that the church the church does, that Rome does, that bishops, do with, with Rome, but it's an official act and it's, and it's done through the publication, publication of the liturgical books and through its pertinent legislation. So right. um, that's different, though, than I think what um, we talk about in terms of reform and renewal in, in the broader sense. And if we actually look at um, Sacrosanctum Concilium itself, uh, it actually uses a single Latin phrase that is often um, translated either as reform or renewal or even um, restoration, and that's instaurare. And I, did, I knew we were going to talk about this, so I did a, a search right before this interview, and, and Sacrosanctin Concilium uses that phrase 20 times. And, and um, there's a word for reform in Latin, it's uh, reformare, and it's not used once. In Sacrosanctum Concilium, but this idea of instaurare, of the restoration, of the renewal of the liturgy and the life of the church, is really what Sacrosanctum Concilium was after, um, and what we. And it also called for certain elements of ritual reform, and it seems that what we've actually gotten um, in you know in the implementation of Sacrosanctum Concilium is. Uh, an emphasis on ritual reform that was aimed at this renewal in the life of the church—that um, it, it, was its purpose. It was, it was renewal and restoration. Of the liturgy is the is the source and summit of the church's life. It's um, the font of 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 our engagement with the uh, with the modern world and and for the evangelization of the world. Um, but there's a difference, right? There's a difference between. We don't need ritual reform in order to um, in order to renew our celebrations of the liturgy.
0: Yes. So, uh, you sent an email to that effect before we had this interview, and I remember thinking, "Well, Adam has just irrevocably changed my vocabulary <laughs> in, in talking about this because I've been talking about the reform of the reform and so on." But this is—I think—you're precisely correct. I mean, when we talk about reform, that has a a sort of an official magisterial juridical sort of connotation to it, that this involves documents from Rome and bishops' conferences and official changes in translations or rubrics and that kind of thing. Uh, But what the council was really seeking this, and so this is the first time I've heard this, and now you've really enlightened me again, that that Sacrosanctum Concilium never used the word reform, the Latin word for reform. Not once. That's very interesting. It used instead restore and renew so maybe elaborate a little bit more on that because this is very interesting i think what mm-hmm. did what did what do you think vatican ii therefore was seeking to restore what needed to be restored
1: well i i think of uh, an anecdote from uh from the council itself um where uh, Cardinal Frings of of Cologne, right? Am I getting this right? Whose paratus was a young uh, Ratzinger, <laughs> yeah. Professor Ratzinger?
0: Who? Oh, I don't know. Okay, go ahead. Yeah,
1: uh, and this is actually in in uh, O'Malley's sort of you know um, te- you know story of Vatican II and so forth. But yeah, uh, but at the after the bishops of the world voted in favor of Sacrosanctum Concilium, I uh, have the figure here. Um, 2147 I think to four right So overwhelmingly voted in favor Cardinal Springs um, stood up and took the mic and he said, what we have just done is this historical moment we have um, just paraphrasing but but uh, uh, enshrined the the vision of Pope Pius the 12th and Pope Pius the tenth in this rich, liturgical vision that the church has developed for the last 100 years um, with the weight and force of of a an ecumenical council and and the entire you know assembly just kind of applauded and 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 you know had this beautiful moment but but what uh, what he was saying though is that the church has been working out um, these ideas and it's been desiring a deep, renewal of the liturgy in the life of the church for for a hundred years and i think the two of you talked about that last time as yeah, well we did and, uh, prosper Guéranger's and so forth um and Solem and and all the great liturgical movement figures through the 19th to 20th century were were talking about these very same um ideas and so um it's really unfortunate right that that um if we look at Vatican II with a hermeneutic of discontinuity as a kind of a fresh starting point that's disconnecting itself with the past, as many have done, we lose that connection to to all that that went before and a lot of the foundational principles, and it makes it difficult for us to understand uh, understand it rightly. Um, you know, and and as yeah. well, if if um, you know, we, we think about the classical liturgical movement itself, um, it, it was not about ritual reform. It, it was about helping form the faithful to participate fruitfully, actively, right? Um, the active participation coined in 1903 by Pope Pius X uh, yeah. in, in a document on sacred music. Um, this was their aim and they did it with what we now call the the old mass or the traditional Latin mass, right? They they had no desire necessarily to reform the liturgy. They wanted to reform. They they wanted to renew the church. They wanted to renew the faithful's participation in it. But of course that involves um, an element of formation and of training and helping us to, learn the elements of of the sacramental system of sacramental signs that the liturgy is constituted of um, sacred music is a part of that and to be able to move through the sign to the signified and to participate in this reality right so it involves um, training and formation and in like a mystagogical catechesis but this is a point that i often try to um, counterbalance that that very important work with is that the forms themselves need to be clear. The signs themselves need to be clear so that they can be rightly perceived and participated in. Yeah. And this is why, you know, the, the practical uh, renewal of sacred music in the parish is, is, is very important.
0: So what, obviously what they sought to restore then, was a more active laity, uh, a more educated laity uh, to who were sort of really entering into the mystagogy of the liturgical experience and not merely spectators, but that that primarily as this, if I'm listening, if I'm hearing you correctly, that primary their focus, therefore, was primarily on, in a sense, upgrading the music, the musical heritage, their the musical participation of the faithful. Is that was that was that their focus
1: um in in the classic liturgical movement um uh, you're saying um
0: yes yes
1: it, it was definitely at the fore um if we think of of the motivations of geron and and solem um they they began by trying to restore gregorian chant to its rightful place um in in the liturgy so so it was at the font uh pope pius x's impetus as well with sacred music um so i think yeah. it's it's very much of the fore and it's such a a dominant aspect of our experience of the liturgy that i think that you know even then like like now we we see how important it is but no it definitely wasn't limited to it um, okay
0: there were there were other elements um, i guess what i'm what i'm trying to get at here uh, and bishop conley you can jump in at any in any time that you want uh, don't wait on me to, to to call on you if you have a comment that you want to interject feel free uh What I'm trying to get at here then is if if there was no real desire on the part of the council fathers to actually officially reform the ritual itself, to change it all into the vernacular, to do mass versus populum, to replace Gregorian chant with uh, with hymns of various levels of quality and so on and so on and so on. Uh, If that was not their intent, uh, why then after the council was there, a you know, a committee and a commission set up to do e- exactly all of those things? That's 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 the disconnect. I'm trying to connect the dots here.
1: Well, this?
2: I think I think <clears throat> I think I just make two comments. I, I like to hand this off to Adam. I thought that uh, Adam's uh, description of the council and what led up to it was just uh, beautiful and spot on. Yeah. Two things strike me. One is that I think there's a reason, there's a couple of reasons why Sacra Sanctum Concilium was the very first document promulgated by the council. And, and that is this is my own theory. One is that there already had been, you know, nearly a century or more, more than a century, of preparation with this very desire that, that Adam articulated, that you know, that that the popes going back to Pope Pius X and even before. A desire to to renew this very fundamental experience of the Christian faithful, and that is worship. And um, and so the very first major document to be promulgated was uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium on on December fourth, nineteen sixty three. We just celebrated the sixtieth uh, anniversary uh, in December. Yeah. And I think the other reason too is is that. Um, the liturgy is so fundamental to the Christian life, you know, Lex Orande, Lex credendi. how we pray is what we believe. And so they realized that this, you know, this should be the very first thing we deal with um, in this, in this, you know, historic council, which is aimed in overall in renewing the church. You know, I mean, the renewal, I mean, really, I think what, what, what drove the second Vatican council was the, um, you know, the the fundamental call to holiness. You know this is really yeah. what all the documents, all sixteen, are aimed at. Is 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 holiness? Is is how do we how do we inspire, and encourage, engender holiness in the faithful? Well, worship. You know, going back to uh, you know, and I mentioned this last time we talked about uh, you know the the Israelites in slavery. Why did why why was slavery so bad? You know why was why why did the Israelites want to leave? Egyptian uh, slavery, and that is so they could worship God. That's the fundamental reason for the freedom and liberation. And so this, you know, is why I think that this was the first document. And then what Adam touched upon is very interesting as, as he was talking about, and you kind of brought it up, was music. Um, I keep coming back to this phrase, and I, and I think it's in a sermon of St. Augustine where he, he says, only the lover sings, only the lover sings. The highest expression of love that human beings can bodily and spiritually express is song, poetry, music. Um, it it's, goes back to the very beginning. And so there's where I think music, uh, like, like Adam was saying, plays such an important role because it's 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 music it's song it's poetry it's verse it's lyric that lifts up the human spirit to praise and worship god and not only because it's the best thing we can do for him or the highest expression of our love and we we believe that it pleases him when we do it well yeah um, but also it it lifts us up you know it it, it lifts us up it it it, it it transforms us. And that's really what the liturgy needs to do is it's, it's transformational. I mean, when you experience that, you know, in a, in a liturgical setting, you know, you are, you are transformed. You know, you are taken into the cosmic liturgy of heaven. And that's the goal of, of all liturgy. Um, now I know I kind of deviated a little bit, but those are just sort of some things that were going through my mind. when Adam was
0: Yeah. I uh, just, if I may piggyback on that and, and then turn it back over to Adam, it is true the Sacrosanctum Concilium was the first document promulgated by the council, but it was not the first document that was considered. The first document that was actually put on the floor for conversation was De Fontibus, which eventually became Dei Verbum, the document on revelation, but it proved to be so contentious and so fraught with, I mean, that Pope John had to intervene. The whole thing was scuttled. It was sent back to a, a different, Uh, theological commission to redo the whole thing, and Joseph Ratzinger was instrumental in a lot of this as well. But I'm not saying this to contradict you, Bishop, but to point out that they then moved on to Sacrosanctum Concilium, and it passed, boom, like, which only goes to show that there was a, a certain consensus, a very broad consensus on the part of the Council Fathers about how important this was and that and and that the basic principles were all agreed upon in other words it wasn't contentious there weren't all these massive brawls on the floor of st peters over this document they discussed it they said two thumbs up and it passed with just four dissenting votes so yeah i think you're absolutely right that this that the fact that it got voted on first and passed first is really an indication of where the council wanted to go and it wanted to go in the direction of a renewal of the entire church via a renewal of, of liturgical participation from the laity. Anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox now, Adam, do you have something that you wanted to add to what Bishop says? And then we we can, uh, I want to move on to a few other things.
1: Yeah. And I might just return to, you know, your question as well, just about uh, did Sacrosanctum Concilium call for ritual reform? And, and it, it yeah. did actually in, it, in certain limited ways, um, such as the introduction of the vernacular, right. Was was, up with yeah. possibility that there were certain, uh, principles like, um, certain simplifications of rights and so forth. And, you know, um, and, and I think that another important, um, reason that, that motivated this, well, for one, um, the vernacular was discussed at the council of Trent, right? This wasn't even, this was something that was yeah. on in conversation for, for a while. Um so it, it uh, you know, what wasn't revolutionary per se, but but it was aimed at you know the acknowledgement that the faithful had difficulty um, participating in the liturgy in the way that they ought. And so they're considering what are ways that we can make this easier and more accessible, right? And, and that first and foremost happens through formation and, and through through you know drawing them in and, and helping dispose the faithful to participate uh, well in, in various ways. Um, you know, but there's also an acknowledgement that um you know there there could be certain certain ways to to facilitate that participation through you know the adjustment of the right itself um you know, and I think that the uh, uh the introduction of the vernacular obviously is one of the most you know visible um, um reforms that people see and talk and talk about and that that brings a lot of complexity especially in regard to music, right so I think it's um, uh, yeah. When we look at it, there are, there are definitely uh, ritual reform elements that, that that the that the church um, a- allowed for. But I think agreeing with you, what we ended up getting probably took that you know way further than what the the council fathers yeah. and Sacrosanctum Concilium may have envisioned.
0: Yeah, I I I I think that's true. Uh, I I want to get on quickly. Uh, to what you're doing with Source and Summit and where we are today in terms of the liturgical renewal. But before we do that, I I just want to get your I'll put you on the spot here a little bit. I want to get your honest assessment, Adam. What do you think of the Mass of Paul VI? Uh, What do you think of the old Latin Mass? Uh, and, uh, okay. So just, just comment on that. I mean, what, what do you think of the, of the mass of Paul the sixth? And, and, and is it something that we should chuck out the window as the traditionalists say, and start from scratch? Uh, or is it something that we can tweak with by simply adding elements of, of the old liturgy to it?
1: Well, there are two ways that I could approach that. Um, I, I think that my, my fundamental disposition to this is that, you know, I, um, see myself as a you know a son of the church here and and one who wants to move with the church and and help um uh, facilitate you know the, the salvation of souls um, ultimately and and we um, have I, I have a, a real um, obligation and a real desire to um, help support, and and uh, and work with that which the church um, presents us. So we, we have um, lawfully approved liturgical books that that we have that are um, valid and and um, and actually you know when celebrated well um, you know I think foster very good and beautiful celebrations of the mass that sanctify souls and give glory to God uh, and and. We're also living in a very—I um, mean—the way that I think of 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 what I do day by day is I, I feel like I'm often, you know, tiptoeing through like a a, a war zone with landmines <laughs> all over the place because they've been torn up, you know, over sixty years by liturgy wars that have aff- afflicted the church. Um, and I think for the vast majority of Catholics, um, they just want to grow in, you know, grow in holiness, right. um, raise holy and, and, and good families, pursue the truth, um, you know, and, and get there get, and get to heaven, right? And get those around them to heaven. And, and the Missal of Paul the sixth can do that for us. Now, yeah. if we just assess it, you know, more on an academic um, side, I, you know, I've, I've read a lot of the literature. Um, I understand the critiques and so forth. But it's not really my place, I don't think, to say I'm going to step above the authority of the church to regulate the liturgy. I think that we need to be faithful and embrace what the church gives us and do the best that we can and to try to achieve the renewal that the church desires in the liturgy with, with it. Now, you know, um, I do attend the uh, extraordinary form, as we called it, uh, from time to time. But, you know, primarily we go to the, the ordinary form. And what I love is that my... my children can float between the two seamlessly and i think that that is a healthy um kind of sign right that that um and i think that's what pope benedict 16th desired um as well and pope john paul ii um in the way that they uh um you know kind of approach the, the traditional liturgy
0: so yeah, yeah I, I i i think that's beautifully expressed and i i think that would express my attitude completely as well. Um, I often say to people, uh, I attended the University of Nebraska my freshman year before I went off to seminary. So that would have been 1977 to 1978. And I went to the Newman Center on the campus of the University of Nebraska, which was a very, very vibrant Newman Center. Uh, to this day remains the greatest faith community that I have ever been involved with. Uh, it, was, it produced vocations out the wazoo, right? Uh, Just numerous, numerous vocations. Lincoln is known for its vocations. They all came out of that Newman Center. And yet the liturgy, which was totally orthodox and all the rubrics were followed, was never the music was St. Louis Jesuits, monks of Western Priory, guitar masses. uh, And I don't think there was even an organ in the building. I I don't even know. uh, Probably was, but we never used the darn thing. Uh, There's one now. Oh, there is one now. I mean, they've since rebuilt the church. The old church was, all I remember had terrazzo floors and blue windows. And <laughs> it was the blue church. Uh, it was actually my parish church. I got my first communion there before they turned it into a Newman center, but that's neither here nor there. The, the point being, and I agree with you, Adam, that the key here is that the Mass of Paul the Sixth can foster holiness, and it can foster a powerful expression of of faith and it can sustain that uh despite some of the musical shortcomings that we all lived through during that period of time uh and, and so in some ways you know, i tell people this i i just had an interview with monsignor michael heinz at mount saint mary's this morning we we're talking about this when i was a seminarian the mass of paul the sixth is the mass that nurtured me it's the mass I grew up with, and I didn't become aware of the fact that I was supposed to hate it until much later <laughs> when people told me, oh, you're supposed to hate this mass because it's terrible. I, it didn't even dawn on me that because, like, as you put it, it was liturgi- it was lawfully put forward by the church. This is the mass that the church has put forward for us, and, and, and therefore, I don't know what a lot of grumbling uh, about it is going to do. But anyway, once again, get off my soapbox. Bishop Conley, you lived through that era. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that on that topic before we move on?
2: Well, I mean a lot could be said, but I think uh, you, you both have touched upon uh, the kind of the fundamental elements of uh, you know the I mean I I'm a convert of the Catholic faith, as you guys know, and I came into the church. I kind of read my way into the Catholic Church as a college student. So primarily what I read was you know history, uh, of the church, you know, going back to the beginning and kind of finding out where the true faith was, and then my introduction to, um, you know, to actual uh, liturgical life was my experience I had at Fontgombault in France, which is, uh, which is interesting because now um, I mentioned this last week or last time we were on. I, I you know, right now. The, the um, Faucon Bow and all of its daughter houses, the Benedictine Monastery in France and Clear Creek in the United States, in Oklahoma, Tulsa, outside of Tulsa, they, they used the extraordinary form. But for uh, 20 years, nearly 20 years, they had changed their books and used the Nova Sordo in Latin. And that was my introduction. I didn't know the difference between the Novus Ordo mass and a you know Preconciliar mass at all. I didn't, but yeah. I I was introduced to the beauty of this Novus Ordo Mass celebrated in Latin, Gregorian chant, in the in the uh, late 70s in, in, at Fontgombault in France, and that's what kind of etched into my imagination of what true liturgical worship was, and um, and to me that liturgy was celebrated the way that the Council Fathers intended the the novus order to be yeah. celebrated um, and so then as i as I kind of matured as a Catholic I became fascinated with the history of the liturgy I was one of the first priests to ever get a celebrate to celebrate the uh, right after right after crazyzy day 1988 I got a, i was studying in Rome so I got a celebrate so I could learn to say the old mass and so then you know periodically throughout my priesthood i've, I've celebrated the traditional mass. And now that I have the fraternity of St. Peter in my diocese, I do ordinations for them, et cetera. So I, I think that, um, you know, I think what Adam was saying, I think that the, the mind, certainly I think of, of John Paul II and, and, and more specifically Benedict XVI was that that these two expressions of liturgical worship could complement and cross-pollinate each other. So that decades down the road, we would see something more not a hybrid, but a but a fully developed understanding of what the the, the true renewal of liturgy would look like.
0: Excellent. I I I think that was the aim of, of Benedict the 16th, very much so. And uh, before we move on, Adam, I just have to ask you. I mean, I you may may or may not know this but all my listeners do, even though I'm a cradle Catholic and not a convert. My wife and I attend an Anglican Ordinariate parish near us in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And I've always said that one of the reasons why I attended is because I think that that mass is about as close as we can get to uh, to what I think should have happened in terms of the reform of the liturgy mass in the vernacular prayers out loud dialogical responses from the laity but very elevated english odd orient lots of bells and smells and incense lots of anglican plain chant uh communion rail kneeling for communion on the tongue and so on you get the picture uh what do you what do you think of the anglican ordinary liturgy
1: i think it's beautiful and it's wonderful you know for all the reasons that that you said um <clears throat> i am friendly with you know several people who are involved. Uh, in it, um, Alexis Katarna, who just finished up a, a PhD, she's in Houston and works for Bishop Lopes. Um, right. Uh, it just finished a dissertation that that was focused on um, chant and vernacular chant composition. Interestingly, sort of did a case study on on the ordinariate um, as well. And so I'm attuned, you know, to, to to this. I think it's I think it's yeah, exactly exactly what you said. Um, and yeah, is, uh, is, uh, um, is a treasure for us.
0: Yeah, I, I think too, uh, one of the things about it, at first it annoyed me, uh, but we have a full-time choir director. He's also kind of the, the church office manager, Paul Campbell. He is a brilliant musician, and what he does with our amateur choir, our vol- um, amateur our volunteer choir, is simply magnificent. But one of the things that really annoyed me at first was there's a lot of hymns, and they sing every verse, right? Uh, The the hymn could have eight verses, and we're going to sing all eight verses. And at first, I thought, oh, geez, come on. I don't like this at all. But the, the hymns that Paul Campbell has chosen and developed, he's really trying to preserve the rich hymnology of that Anglo tradition. And quite frankly, the hymns are just drop dead beautiful, and in 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 terms of not just their musicality, but the theology of the verses and so on. Uh, so I also see that as part of of, of what's going on with the ordinary, which is a kind of retrieval of that of that tradition of hymns, which I which was foreign to me. But anyway. Uh, I lost my train of thought there. Anyway, I want to. I, so Anglican ordinariate. And, and I think that I'm, I'm glad that you uh, think that it's kind of a model for going forward in some ways, in some ways. But that brings us to where we are now. All right. And uh, just recently, I mean, Justice Verbisque was 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 put out by Rome, which was a document on liturgical abuses and Invalid sacramental formulas for baptism and things like that, and I and I wrote in Catholic World Report. I thought that's a most welcome document, actually, uh, and and I hope that the, the document has teeth and they, and that they enforce it uh, the way that they should. Because the fact is uh, that there is an ongoing problem in many quarters of the church with with liturgy. I mean, I've just recently seen a video of a liturgy that was taking place at the Los Angeles religious education meeting uh, that to me seemed more like a performance, a musical performance with a lot of modern music than a liturgy. Someone just sent me a a video of of a mass in Germany that took place, where as communion was being distributed, they were playing the chicken dance song. And there was a woman dressed as a chicken or a man. I don't know in the sanctuary, dancing around to the chicken song as, as People, Eucharistic ministers who were wearing winter coats uh, were distributing communion uh, to people that were bouncing around. Anyway, obviously, these are anecdotal things. But th- what it is, is it shows that there's still some work to be done. Right. So, Adam, wh- wh- where are we right now? What, what is the state of liturgy and what are you trying to do? Let's get to Source and Summit here. You are founder and CEO of Source and Summit. Mm-hmm. So what is Source and Summit? What are, what are its aims? And in uh, answering that question, maybe then you can answer more directly, where are we in terms of liturgical renewal?
1: Sure. <clears throat> so Source and Summit is a liturgy and music publisher and tech company. We have a digital platform um, that helps parishes elevate the liturgy, especially through music. Um, our um, Missal is in its third year Source and summit missile for the pews, um, and the digital platform has various plans. And if this is a liturgy preparation tool for parish musicians that does all kinds of you know um, things that that make their life easy, but also that kind of put the riches of the liturgy and the musical tradition at their at their fingertips. And so um, we are a, a resource for for parishes um, that. Um, you know, that, that gives them the, the tools that they need. And also we try to help guide them gradually uh, toward that, which the church, you know, is, is inviting us to do. And so um, uh, it originally was founded in 2011 as Illuminari Publications. So some people might have seen the Lumen Christi Lumen Missile Christian. in the pews. Um and that was kind of the first incarnation of Source and Summit. Um, But after my time at uh, Mundelein Seminary and the Liturgical Institute, I um, kind of had a deep reflection on um, inspired in many ways by then, you know, Father Barron, who was the rector. And um, every time in Cardinal, yeah, exactly, Cardinal George. And every time that that Father Barron would come and and celebrate Mass for the Liturgical Institute, you know, he would sort of give the same homily and say, you know, the, the liturgical renewal and the new evangelization are inseparable. And he was just really kind of trying to send a message and I just really wanted to understand what he meant. So I I dove into that and and the fruits for me is the vision for what now Source and Summit is. And so I've made um, a lot of practical efforts with this initiative to engage with people who on the ground are doing the work of the new evangelization. And one of those um, organizations would be focused. um, I started working with Focus and consulting with them and, and directing music at the Seek Conference in 2016. Bishop Conley mentioned it before. We just had over 20,000 people uh, pulling musicians out of the registrants. We had a choir of over 60 strings and an organ. And, you know, we were uh, singing the mass and, and using resources almost, almost exclusively from Source and Summit. And, uh, and, and, and I think it is a great uh, example of what I see lying ahead for the future of the church. Um, and, and I think that at the root of this is that we have a younger generation. I'm, I'm actually a first year millennial. Okay. So I'm, I'm like right on the cusp of uh of this younger generation, but still kind of reaching back, you know, into the Gen X a little bit, but, um, you know, but my, my generation is in a very different place I think than where your generation was, um, Decades ago, in your in your youth, you know we we have um, a young, faithful, uh, uh, hungry generation that that you know desires what is true, good, and beautiful. They desire the transcendent. Uh, they want authenticity, right? We've also seen ninety percent of our of our generation um, exit the church, right? I mean, we have this massive um, disaffiliation crisis as well. And so what I see is um, a younger generation that desires to celebrate the liturgy and to pray the liturgy authentically. They they desire um, beautiful sacred music and and, um, the parishes that are uh, implementing Source and Summit are are doing exactly that. And I think that they're seeing um, that the liturgy beautifully and faithfully celebrated indeed can be and, and ought to be. Um, the the beginning and, and the font of, of parish renewal and the renewal of the church. And so... Par-
0: um, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Please. How many parishes are making use of Source and Summit?
1: So that was confidential information until the pillar shared it a couple weeks ago. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> oh, um,
0: JD and Ed, JD and Ed. They're, they're good at outing these things, I guess. Yeah, but
1: I think I, I'm actually happy that they did because it, you know... Um, I think is a, is a testament, you know, to what's happening in our time. So we, I think we're just about to hit 550 parishes um, who have all, you know, subscribed within the last three years. Very
0: um, good.
1: And I, and I had a look as well. Um, we're in about 15 seminaries. The um, Pontifical North American College uh, uh, adopted it just this past year. And then I know that there are another probably five or ten seminaries that have used the Lumen Christi Missal and Hymnal and so forth. So we're seeing, you know, younger generations that are being formed um, in the liturgy beautifully and, and solemnly and reverently celebrated. And I think that it's it's transforming. Uh, it's transforming lives.
0: Bishop Conley, are, are there parishes in the Lincoln Diocese that are using Source and Summit?
2: Uh, Yes. In fact, Adam came and gave a a workshop to our priests a few years ago. Um, I think that was probably what, 2016 or 17, something like that. It was was a while back. Yeah. It's a while back. And um, I'd like to say that we're all using them or not. Um, Some are, um, you know, and one of the things that Adam touched upon, I think is very important and why Source and Summit is very important. He said that he won't want he after he reflecting more in his years uh at the institute the liturgical institute at in, in mundelein and hearing bishop Barron, that you know he wanted to do something very practical because that when the rubber hits the road what can a parish? i mean you're scraping you're just trying to get somebody who can carry a tomb right in your parish you don't have an organist you don't have any resources and so how can that's that's why the default at least in my experience, it's been the default is what you know, what do you know? You know, you get these insipid, you know, 1970s and eighties feel good hymns and everybody yeah. knows them. Everybody knows them, you know, um, and they just, that's what they sing because that's all they know. And so how do we, how do we lift them up in a way that they can, it's doable. And, and I remember having a conversation with uh, Adam, gosh, this is probably over 10 years ago. I think I was still in Denver about this idea of an app, you know, or this idea of a digital platform, you know, that we can put these resources in the palm of your hand, you know, and that, um, and somehow that we can, we can teach these, that people can do these things, people can, because that's the thing, my my priests tell me, I just don't have any resources, we do these things because we just don't, nobody, nobody volunteers to sing, I I can't sing, so how am I going to do this in my parish, so it's not for lack of will on the part of our priests, at least in my diocese, and I'm only speaking for Lincoln. It's just that we, we don't have the, the um, kind of the, the practical know how to be able to pull these things off on a Sunday, every Sunday, you know, um, mm-hmm. for, for lack of, lack of people to, to do it. And so I think that what Adam is doing, and as it catches on, especially as you go upstream with the seminarians, I mean, these seminarians that are coming out now, my younger seminarians, they are much better liturgically formed than I ever we ever were. You know, and, and we never had. This we
0: we were we were liturgically formed, Jim. <laughs> no, uh, I, I, mean, again, I, I was a stretch.
2: I know that was a stretch, but uh, we we were supposed to be liturgically formed. But um, they have a great understanding of this, and these young priests they want beautiful liturgy, and they and they sure. kind of become frustrated because then they try t- to do it, and sometimes, you know, as young zealous. Priests, they rub people the wrong way, and then they get tagged as whatever traditionalist, stratty, or whatever you know. And when really they're not, you know, um, they they really are not in it for the liturgical war. Um, they are in it because they've experienced the beauty, and they know it could be done, and they just lack the know-how uh, to do it. And that's where I think Source and Summit is a great a great resource. And yeah. in my diocese in Lincoln, we, we were moving that direction. I think we need to do more COVID kind of, we were going in a great direction up until the pandemic. I think uh, in fact, uh, we had, we had these sacred liturgy conferences, which we haven't had since then. So I'm, I'm almost inspired. I am inspired to, to, to start that back up again. Uh, now that we're on the there other side of the pandemic.
0: What priests lack, they lack training, they lack the time, and they lack the resources. Mm, if, yeah. if they can be given all three of those things, I think a lot, I think you're right. The young priests of today would jump at a chance uh, to implement uh, reform, uh, renewal like in Source and Summit. You said something, too, I think that's really important, uh, Bishop Connolly, uh, and that is people today revert back to the song. They'll sing the old St. Louis Jesuit hymns and so forth, that, because that's the ones they know. I told you, I went to the Immaculate Conception Mass in my local territorial parish here, December 8th, and they were singing Gentle Woman, a song that I despise, and yet I knew every word of it. And, and I found myself almost... Unconsciously singing along to it against my better judgment because Mm -hmm. I was that's what I was raised with. I knew it, it it, it, it made me feel a certain con natural sentimentality uh, to to be singing a song for my youth. So here's the point I'm trying to make warm and
2: fuzzy inside.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I felt gemütlich, as the Germans say. Uh, And the, the fact is. You know, I remember when these new music came in, my father refused to sing them in the 60s and 70s because he didn't know the new songs. But whenever they would sing like an old Immaculate Mary or something, he would boom out the things because that's what he knew when he was young. So my, my point is this. Yeah, we're probably going to face some resistance amongst people of our age or who are in their 40s and 50s or whatever. But if we, if we can get source and summit, just to to strategize for you, Adam. <laughs> but I'm sure you've already thought of this. But I'm for my listeners. If we can, if we can get source and summit into seminaries, into Catholic schools, as little as elementary schools and and, and so forth, if we can get Source and Summit uh, into Newman centers. In other words, if we can train the next generation of Catholics, young Catholics, so that when they're 40 and 50 and 60 years old, they'll be singing some of Adam's chants. They will remember the music of Source and Summit. And so we're probably looking at a decades-long path here. Of, of trying to try, trying to renew things, so we have to take the long view, I guess. What do you think of that, Adam?
1: I think you're right. I mean, as much as I wish we could flip a switch, you know, and and and, uh, and change everything overnight, it's not the way things work. And, and even if we tried, it wouldn't be successful, you know. So this is something that, I mean, renewal in the liturgy moves very slowly, um, and. I mean, I'm, I myself, I'm already like 15 years into the effort. I think I've done a lot of pioneering work. You know, I'm not the only one there. are. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants and I'm you know working with colleagues that are doing amazing things. Um, yeah, but I mean, it, it takes time. You know, it does take time. And I think that you're right. I mean, working with seminaries, we, we work with Catholic schools, um, campus ministries. I mean, you can get the digital platform at a fraction of the cost if you are a... Um, a college, you know, um, campus ministry or a Catholic school, you know, even a monastery, you want to support the, those who are, you know, praying for us um, unceasingly and, um, and um, yeah, seminaries, et cetera. So um, really want to support the, the up and coming generation. I think also, you know, we really try to um collaborate with with conferences and places where catholics are coming and they're kind of experiencing things outside of their typical um you know day-to-day week-to-week experience and so the seat conference um I've been working with the napa institute with uh, legatus as well and um you know very various others and helping equip them to celebrate the the liturgy beautifully you know at, at these high level uh conferences is all all very important um, yeah. But I, I look at my own children, you know, and, and they have kind of just grown up singing the mass and, uh, and it's just a part of them, you know, and I, and I, I think that, yes, we, we can foster this um, everywhere. um, And, and I think that this is really what the council fathers imagined when they called for a renewal of the liturgy, that we would just be um you know be, be deeply united to the prayer of the liturgy entering into um, the, these you know timeless prayers and chants and and you know in, in this ritual it becomes a part of us in that through uh, this prayer we can be sanctified, be be united to Christ who himself sings to the Father um, and to be invigorated as missionary disciples to go out and to transform the world. Um, yeah and we can I would, add,
2: I would add I would add one thing to that too and I, and I agree 100% 100% with what you just said Adam I would say too that if we look at a parish and we look at the resources that a parish has and I'm talking about financial resources mm-hmm. the first check they should write each month is to the music director i think that's where they should invest the dollars because if you invest in you know, good music, and, and and people are. You can get volunteers, and that's great. And I think choir members, people who love to sing, will do it without getting paid. But I think it'll, at least, and from the way I see it, it, is is you need someone who can actually do this. You know, because it can't be just the priest. And and get to get somebody good, you have to pay for it. And so, uh, you know, parishes can afford it. You know, now some are, you know. Are, are, have have, you know, less means than others. But I think it, you should put that as a priority of where you're going to spend your money that you, that you do on your parish administration.
0: I could not agree more with that. I mean, we have to put our mount, money where our mouth is. I mean, if the Eucharist is the source and summit <laughs> of our life as Catholics, if we believe what we say we believe about that, then it ought to be the number one place where we where we put some resources. I I, I mean, I hate to mention my choir director, Paul Campbell, again. But one of the first things that Father Eric Bergman, our pastor, did when his whole congregation converted from Episcopalianism was he brought Paul along with him. Now, I mean, Paul's also married to Father Bergman's wife's sister, so that kind of helped. Uh, But but the fact of the matter is, is that we have a 10 a.m. solemn mass that has all the bells and whistles, and it's the most well-attended Mass of all the Masses at the ordinary. The low Masses are less well-attended, whereas if you go to my local territorial parish, the, and this, this is a damning thing, the most well-attended Mass is the 7.30 a.m. Mass on a, Saturday, a Sunday morning because there's no music, and people flock to that Mass because there's no music, and when you talk to the parishioners that go to that Mass, they say, it's because, oh, we hate the music, we Just we can't stand the music at, at, at the other, and it's because it's you know, but well, anyway, you know the drill. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think we need to pour resources in, in precisely into that. Adam, you look like you want to say something. Go well, ahead, Sarah. If I
1: could just add one thing, too. I agree wholeheartedly with you, but um, I think that there's also a reality that that you know the church recognized at the council and in documents like musicam Sakram that. You know we have parishes that have more resources than others. And I think, you know, Bishop Conley, you probably know this as well as anyone out in kind of the, you know, the the, the cornfields of Nebraska, you're going to have little small parishes that don't have a lot of resources to draw upon. And this is precisely why um, Musicam Sakram, you know, as example, as example says um, that the sung form of the liturgy is to be preferred everywhere and, and even done several times on you know on a Sunday. But that was not the preconciliar experience, because achieving the fully sung mass and all of its demands was actually quite difficult, right? So, actually, the pastoral tools that we have in musica Sakram um, are amazing, and 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 I I want um, certainly centers of excellence in parishes that are striving for that with music staff and so forth. But I want to see you know the small parishes singing the mass with a you know led by the priest who, who himself needs to sing his parts with the people replying the order of mass and the ordinary, of the mass, and just a single cantor can lead the proper of the mass. Yes. It can be a, a homeschooling, you know, uh family or, or a high school or something. This is not complicated. It's in it. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be complicated to sing. The mass can be done very simply, and it can be done in a, in a much more grand way. And, but, but, you know, Fundamentally, we need to be singing the Mass itself mm-hmm. and not yes. singing the Mass. And this is True. what Source and Summit resources are, are trying to do for, for the country parish or the
2: urban cathedral.
0: Two things. Let
2: me just add one thing quickly. Um, no, go uh, ahead. You know, we have, a, we have a, a small parish, and I love going out there. It's way out in the western part of the diocese. It's a mother and a daughter who do the cantoring. They have beautiful voices. They sing the propers. They lead the hymns. And they lead the common parts of the mass, and it's just glorious. Uh, the bo- part of it because, and, and they're just a mother and daughter, and never have been trained, you know, and in music. Um, I don't think, but they, but they just have beautiful voices, and they know good music, and that's all it takes. I don't even know if they're paid, but it's it shows you that it can be done.
0: And I make you a bet, Bishop Connolly, out in those same rural area. Well, I don't have to bet it because I've I've been to these things. Uh, You could find a Methodist church or a Lutheran church out in population 50, some city, and they'll be bellowing out beautifully hymns that they that they that are singable, that are beautiful. And it's part of their tradition. And so they do. So it can be done. I'd like to add two things to this, too. I'd like I, I wish we could adopt as a liturgical principle elements of the Hippocratic Oath. And that would be first, do no harm. (laughs) I think that's that's a principle that I would adopt if I were a pastor. First, do no harm, which means just get rid of the really awful music, even if it means having masses without music temporarily. Just get rid of it. And second, I think there's a reason why chant. And I mentioned this to you last time, Bishop Conway. There's a reason why chant is an almost universal prayer form in religions all over the world, because it it is something that can be done a cappella. It can be done. Something when the chants are simple that can be done by average people, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 I know Adam, you could speak to this probably a little bit more. Uh, let's go. Go ahead. I mean, uh, what do you think? I mean that that chant is, chant is a much more learnable skill on on the part of small parishes all over the world than than kind of elaborate sort of responsorial psalms that sound like a brain mule wrote them. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Gregorian chant, just by the way, does have some very ornate forms that you know the highly trained yes. school, you know. But it, in its essence and really at its foundation, I think you're absolutely right. This is a form of cantillation <clears throat> that that very simply sets the the words of scripture, the words of the liturgy itself to music. That's what chant is. It sets the word the words of the liturgy to music, which are largely scripture, the psalms, etc sung in unison um, each member of the you know liturgical assembly has a part to play, the priest and the deacon and you know the lector and the cantor and the congregation they're all that the, they all form a part of this um, song that is the liturgy itself and it can be done very, very simply, but it can also be done if we you know we talk about the full Gregorian mass you go to font Gumbo or Soam or somewhere you know and you hear the 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 graduals that, um you know with melismas of you know 20 30 50 notes on a single syllable right and they're just it it, it's glorious um and it's drawing us up into the prayer of christ who himself prays through the liturgy to the father reunited as members of the mystical body and it draws us into that prayer and it draws us into heaven that's what it's supposed to do it can be done simply it can be done in a more elaborate way the beauty of the gift that the church has given us, I think, um, in Sacrosanctum Concilium, in the post-conciliar um, and perennial vision of uh, the church's uh, vision for the liturgy, is that any parish can do this. It may not be the same every place, but we all can do it because singing the mass is so important.
0: Now, is this is what you're doing with Source and Summit limited to the Anglo world?
1: Um. Currently, we're working within the U.S. because there are licensing, rest, you know, restrictions. Right. We're working With like the U.S. lectionary and so forth, uh, we are working with uh, Spanish and Latin resources, but we're only permitted at the moment to sell subscriptions um, to parishes and organizations in the diocese of the United States.
0: Oh, okay, very good. Yeah. So. But, you know-
1: you know, we get notes from Canada every week and, you know, and people in Australia and, you know, and even, you know, Spanish resources is a lot of demand. So it's a lot of work to be done here for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And may it catch fire. I, I, I'm so inspired by you, Adam, I can't even tell you because I often get into moments of absolute despondency if I go to a liturgy and it's like, oh, dear God in heaven. I, I almost wanted to jump out of a window when I heard gentlewoman being sung at well, FDMA. how
1: often do you make it back to the Newman Center in Lincoln?
0: Uh, Well, probably about once a year uh, so I, they, I go back have, to Lincoln.
1: They have this book in the pews right now. So the next time you go, you'll be able to. Uh, I though.
0: will take a look at it because I have <laughs> not seen it anywhere around me here in the Diocese of Scranton, Pennsylvania. I will be. Uh, I'm going to be in Nebraska in March. By the way, Bishop Conley, I'm going to be there in March. I'm giving a talk uh, at uh, an institute in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I'm giving a lecture there March 19th. And then I'm going to hang out in the Lincoln area for like a week after that. So maybe if you're going to be around, maybe we can uh, uh, organize something. Uh, But I will definitely be I will definitely go to the Newman Center and and check that out for sure. I'm also going to be attending, I'm going to be giving a lot of lectures, uh, Catholic U, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I'm giving one at Providence College in Rhode Island in April. I'm giving a, a lecture in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, at a parish on May 2nd. And so I, w- I would love, to, I'm, I'm going to start promoting Source and Summit wherever I go. I'm going to mention it. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, to drum up some business for you so we, we can we can get this we can get this ball rolling so yeah so that brings me to the next point how can people what what where can they go to access these resources I, i'm assuming there's a web page
1: yes so go to sourceandsummit.com um, to learn about the source and summit missile source and summit digital platform um, any parishes that are interested in adopting the missile can request a free sample copy and we'll get you um, you know, a sample copy right away. Um, and then any any parishes, It's a parish resource, so not just any Catholic who's curious wants to do this, but if you are a music director or even a pastor who want to understand the digital platform, you can sign up for a free 30-day trial at any time, no credit card required or anything, you know, just complete access to the digital platform, and you can use it for 30 days, you know, in, in your parish and give it a try.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and I and I hope people do. I hope that I mean, I don't want to sound vain or arrogant, but this podcast is listened to by a lot of people uh, and some of them priests, uh, some bishops even listen to it <laughs> from time to time. So I am hoping I would encourage every priest friend of mine out there listening to this. If you uh, if you have the time and the resources to to invest in Source and Summit, then, then I would uh, highly recommend it. Bishop Kahn, we should probably wrap this up here. We've been going about an hour. Uh, and Bishop Con, do you have anything that you want to add?
2: No, I just think that um, this is a really, I think, opportune moment because, um, you know, I, I do think that very, we started with this, and I think uh, Bishop Barron uh, emph- emphasized it when he said Mass at the Institute, that the new evangelization will really not take root without a liturgical renewal. I mean, it's, it's, you can have all of the, um, apologetics down. You can have Bible studies and I'm a big fan of the Bible. Um, you can do all these things, but unless you have this experience of, of, of an encounter with the, the, the the true God, Jesus Christ, father, son, and Holy spirit in liturgical prayer and worship, it's not going to take root. And so I think that it's, it's essential that, um, you know, that we, that we continue this, this pathway of renewal. And I think there's a lot of hope. Uh, there's a lot of good things out there, uh, source and yeah. summit being one. And there's a lot of others, as, as Adam alluded to, there's a lot of other people who are, who are doing the same kinds of things. So, um, in spite of some of these, uh, some of these setbacks we experience every now and then, I think there's a great, there's a great reason for hope.
0: Very good. Now, Adam, and I agree with that completely, uh, bishop conway i think there there is a lot of hope adam you you, you obviously were at line, so you know bob bob Barron, bishop Barron very well um is is he on board with source and summit is he uh getting his priests in rochester to i i don't want to put you on the spot and bishop Barron, if you're listening sorry but go, go ahead
1: I, i've been meaning to reach out to him to tell you the truth um i yeah i haven't haven't been in touch with him in a few years but um yeah, I think that conceptually he's he's on board and I have did a few things for him, you know, while, while in the line. Yeah. Um, and uh, would love nothing more, Bishop Aaron, if you're listening to come and give a workshop for your diocese. Um, I will mention too, if there are other bishops or people on the diocesan level, I'm booked to do about seven or eight diocesan workshops this year and still have some slots open. So if, if you know, a diocese or even a, a group of parishes within a diocese want to have an all-day training workshop, um, on a Saturday for parish musicians, maybe a Friday afternoon with priests wow. or even a session with Catholic schools. That's something that I do and that, um, you know, is a great way to, to provide vision, um, inspiration and training, you know, to help to help parishes take on this effort.
0: All right. You hear that, viewers and listeners? <laughs> you, uh, If you want uh, Adam Bartlett to come and, and speak and give training sessions, he is available. And uh, this is a great need, I think, in the church right now. Adam, thank you so much for coming on today. I learned so much listening to you. Uh, I'm inspired by what you're doing uh, and and may it flourish. And I hope everybody listening, you know, gets involved in in getting your parish to be involved in Source and Summit.
1: Thank you, Larry. It's really, really privileged to be here. Thank you for the support.
0: Bishop Connolly, it's always great to see you. And, uh, great to see you. And hopefully we will do more podcasts in the future. We will see. Anyway, I'd like that. Uh, anyway, uh, but I want to thank both of you for being on here today. Such an important topic. We're barely scratching the surface. I could talk here for four hours uh, on the topic of liturgy. And I'll just end by saying this, that I, I, I think one of, one of the takeaways that I hope the viewers and listeners get from this is that in many, many ways, the, li- the liturgy wars that we are currently involved in are very counterproductive let's focus on moving forward. Let's focus on what we can do. And let's focus on quality and beauty and and the patrimony, the rich patrimony of our heritage and the resources that are at our fingertips from people like Adam Bartlett. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, everyone. And uh, bye now.